Good morning. We are reading now from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to go from verse 1 through 11. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, we are overwhelmed by the good gift of, your, of the Lord Jesus Christ for our redemption and also the good gift of your word. How desperately we need your holy instruction so that we might uh, do those things that are pleasing to you. And in this particular passage, we will learn hopefully many things about the great generosity demonstrated by you through Christ, but also what you expect of us and what would please you regarding our giving. We certainly lift up Tom to you. Pray that he would be empowered by your spirit to, to speak words that uh, truly uh, cause us to examine your word even deeper and Hopefully, the response will be joyful obedience to all that you command. Thank you for this wonderful gathering of people to read your word, to study it, and to learn from Tom's teaching. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. If you're new to this church, uh, I probably ought to tell you that we don't talk about money a lot. But we do talk about it when it comes up in the, in the text. And we, we believe that we must teach and learn the whole counsel of God. So uh, we are in two chapters of Corinthians that are absolutely about the subject of giving. Uh, in a reliably excellent sermon on 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Sinclair Ferguson tells of a friend of his who attended a Christian student conference, college students, a big conference, and at one point, uh, the conference organizers announced that they were going to project onto the screen one stanza at a time the lyrics to Francis Havergal's great hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, the hymn that we just sang. 
After each stanza was displayed and read by the speaker, the organizer said, well, after we read each stanza, in order to declare our resolve together to do as the hymn writer resolved to do so many years before, we will say, yes, yes. So they displayed the first stanza, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And the voices rang out, I'm not going to ask you to do it. And the voices rang out, yes, yes. And then the second stanza, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Yes, yes. And so through the first three verses, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. And after each stanza came, stanza came the resounding response, yes, yes. And then they came to verse 4. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And the response? As Dr. Ferguson put it, the silence of the grave reigned. He went on to say this, and I'm quoting, he said, In the modern world, the one thing Christians almost never talk to another Christian about is the blessings that are promised to those who have a gospel view of their money. On that subject, there is usually the silence of the grave. Well, beloved, we are not going to be silent about gospel use of our money for the next few weeks as we're in chapters 8 and 9. During his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, and sorry about the 1 through 15, that's what I started with and then I ended up truncating it because I decided verses 12 to 15 need to be a message of their own. But in his first missionary journey, God used the Apostle Paul to create uh, first-generation churches throughout, the, throughout what we now know as Turkey, or was then Asia Minor, and this region of Galatia. There were several churches here, including one from which Timothy came, uh, several cities where he planted churches. Then he, Paul, on his second missionary journey, he went across over here to Macedonia and planted several other churches, especially the ones that we know would be Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Then he, he moved south down here to the region of Achaia that we know as Greece and started a church in Corinth. And there were also churches, uh, there was a church started in Athens. Corinth was really the big, the big deal city as far as the economy, uh, the affluence, etc. We talked about that in the intro to this whole series. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, Paul said this. He said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, you Corinthians. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
So Paul had already directed the churches of Galatia to take up a collection each Sunday when they gathered together for worship and fellowship. God's intention for that collection was that at a later time, Paul or one of his co-workers would visit each of these churches and would gather all that had been set aside for this gift. And all of those funds would then be carried to Jerusalem to provide much-needed help for the heavily persecuted and impoverished saints in and around that city. In the verses that I just read from 1 Corinthians 16, we learn that Paul had given those same instructions to the Corinthians that he gave to the Galatians. And one thing we must not miss is that Paul nowhere, nowhere specifies an amount or a percentage that each person was to give. Instead, he says, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. The principle that governs how much each believer is to give is a straightforward principle. And, and it is a principle, not a law. Give in proportion to what you have received from God. If it was a law, there'd be a number. But it's a principle. But another facet that we must not miss in this template for giving that Paul sets before all of these churches is that Paul's appeal on God's behalf is to every single person. He does not tell anyone how much to give, but he fully expects that every single one of them will give something. Let each one give as he may prosper. And we have a, ten a tendency to uh, very quickly say, let each one give as he may prosper, to, we change that up so it's let each one give when he prospers enough. So we look at our own financial circumstance and we say, well, it wouldn't be wise for me to give right now. I've got to wait until God prospers me some more. How many promises have you heard from Christians who say, if I won the lottery? That's not the template for what Paul is strongly encouraging the saints to practice here. In 1 Corinthians 62, uh, 16, verse 2, again, he says, On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. If God has prospered you a lot, you get to give a lot. If he has prospered you a little, you get to give a little. Not because God needs your money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and that's what you call the understatement of the greatest understatement of history. God owns everything. The reason that every individual Christian is to be in the habit, you notice the regular pattern here every week? The reason that every Christian is to be in the regular pattern of giving is not because God needs your money, it's because of what Paul in Philippians 4.17 calls the profit that increases to your account through your giving. And it's not monetary profit. It's way better than money. In this morning's passage, we learn that the saints in Corinth 
had already agreed to participate in this much-needed gift that Paul and his co-workers were gathering for the Jerusalem saints. God didn't need it to take care of the Jerusalem saints. The Jerusalem saints needed help, but God is the one who provides the help. Now, let me go on. The Corinthians had already declared that they would voluntarily set aside donations every Sunday for this purpose, that they would participate in this gift. But they weren't doing well at all when it came to following through on their commitment to play a part in this. And that's the problem that Paul is addressing in these two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The reluctance of the Corinthians to carry through with what they had promised to do. In verses 1 through 8, Paul begins his, his address to these Corinthians about, about their giving issue by setting first before them a marvelous example of giving like God gives. And that's, that's the title, my title for this series, these few sermons, Giving Like God Gives. He opens 2 Corinthians 8 by setting before them the Macedonians, the saints in Macedonia. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, listen to this, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. It was entirely voluntary. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul tells us in in Philippians, and he tells us later in this book, that the Macedonians are the ones that also supported him personally in his ministry when other churches didn't. One of the sermons I listened to this week um, was a message by Al Mohler on the first five verses of this chapter. His title for that message was Macedonian Fun. I love that. Why that title? Well, it appears from our passage that Paul had actually been reluctant to ask the churches in Macedonia to participate in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Macedonians had the same problem the Jerusalemites did. They were poor. In fact, Paul says that their poverty was deep poverty. The churches in cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were very poor churches. Yet the saints in those cities begged Paul and his co-workers, quote, with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Isn't that great? So Paul granted them their request. So, okay, <laughs> you can do that. And now Paul commends them for the wonderful generosity of their giving. By the way, just as Jesus commended the widow in Luke 21 who gave her last cent to the Lord, you know what we say when we see something like that? We say, that's not very wise. That's not what Jesus said. 
for the poor to give. Later in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word translated cheerful there is the Greek word hilaron, from which we get the English word hilarious. Beloved, God loves a gleeful giver. And that's what the Macedonians were. They were gleeful givers. They were having fun with this. Don't miss who it is that Paul blames for the overflowing generosity of the Macedonian saints. It isn't them. It's God. Paul makes it crystal clear that the cause of this over-the-top wealth of liberality that he was so blessed to behold in in the Macedonian saints, the cause was, quote, the grace of God given in the churches of Macedonia. Three times here in chapter 8, Paul describes this multi-city collection of money for the saints in Jerusalem as, quote, this gracious work. Not Paul's gracious work, not the Macedonians' gracious work, not the Galatians' gracious work, certainly not the Corinthians' gracious work, God's gracious work, the grace of God given in the churches. In verse 19, Paul refers to this collection as, quote, this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. Why does God get the glory for it? Because it's his work. Paul couldn't be clearer than he is here about the fact that we're just instruments, God is the cause, God is the source, and the gracious work of God that Paul keeps talking about goes way beyond, way beyond God's provision of money to these saints so that they would be able to participate in this gift. At the heart of the gracious work that God has given in the churches is his creation of their delight in meeting the earthly needs of their fellow saints for the glory of God of God himself. God is the cause of that delight. You don't just muster that kind of thing up from within yourself. It is a response to the grace you have received. In the sermon I mentioned earlier, Sinclair Ferguson said, and I'm paraphrasing a little here, he said, one of the greatest joys that we experience as God's redeemed children comes when we see an amazing thing that God is doing and then we realize he's welcoming us to participate in it. Isn't that great? Brothers and sisters, if you walk away with nothing else from our time this morning, I pray it will be this. God's invitation to you to participate in the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth with the money that he has put into your hand is a loving and gracious invitation, not a burdensome duty. The work he's inviting you to join him in doing is a far more precious gift from God to you than the money that he put in your hands so you could do it. Let me say that again. The work he is inviting you to join him in doing is a far more precious gift from God to you 
than the money he put in your hands so you could do it. How do I know that? Because he said so. Listen to these words that Paul spoke to the elders from the church in Ephesus right at the end of his last missionary journey, just before the last leg of that journey to Jerusalem to deliver this gift that is talked about in these chapters to the saints there in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 to 35. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So let me ask you, which is the greater, the greater gift to you from God? The money he puts into your hands or the opportunity that he gives to you to give some of that money away to build his church and to advance his kingdom? It's not a rhetorical question. Option two. <laughs> the, great, the great blessing when it comes to God giving us money is that we get to give it away to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get to build eternal treasure with temporary treasure. Beloved, if we really believe this, we will continually be looking for opportunities to participate in God's provision for others. If necessary, like the Macedonian saints, we'll beg for that opportunity if it's being withheld from us. I'm going to fast forward for a moment to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians to point out another contrast that should have gotten the, the rapt attention of these Corinthian believers. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 9, Paul talks about the support he had received for his own personal work of ministry. He says to the Corinthians, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from where? from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Now, this is stunning. Even though this isn't about the same contribution or the same pool of funds, there's a powerful lesson here that bears on the gift that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There is a very calculated irony that should have pierced the hearts of these Corinthian believers. Corinth was as Dallas is. The Corinthian saints had a lot more money than the Macedonian saints. Yet Paul did not accept support from the Corinthian saints for his ministry in Corinth. And he did accept support from the Macedonian saints for his ministry in Corinth. You with me? 
For the most part, Paul's personal expenses during the year and a half that he spent in Corinth, the first time, were covered through his own work of tent making, the work he did with his own hands. But what donations he did accept to support his ministry during that time did not come from the Corinthians because he would not accept them from the Corinthians. They did come from much poorer churches. Why did Paul not accept wages from the Corinthians for his faithful service to them on Christ's behalf? Because he knew the Corinthian church was infected with materialism. And he was willing to do whatever he could so that they would be cured of their bondage to their money. Paul resolved to make his own life a very visible example to them of a gospel view of money. A view that the Macedonian saints already shared with Paul, but the Corinthian saints did not. Sinclair Ferguson again said that the, the, a great promise of these two chapters is that Jesus Christ frees us from bondage to money. I would add on the positive side of that gracious liberation is that we get to watch God use the money that he gives to us as an instrument of blessing to us and to others when we generously give it away. And the greatest blessing goes to the giver. That promise is front and center in this passage. In verses 6 through 8, Paul moves from example to exhortation. Now it's your turn, Corinthians. He says, Consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. As proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love, of your love also. In that last verse, verse 8, Paul makes it clear that he, he does not have a command from God as he is now exhorting the Corinthians to abound in their participation in this gracious work of God. He's inviting them. But he's inviting them to prove by their actions in this matter the sincerity of their own love for the brethren, just as the Macedonians had proven. Paul moves from that exhortation and from that imperfect example to the perfect example. And that perfect example, of course, is Jesus. He sets before us the foundation and the perfect template for all Christian giving at all times. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about what he said in, back in chapter 5. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
The preeminent example that we have of love-driven giving is Christ's perfect gift of his life laid down to bring to sinners like us the unfathomable riches of Christ. Read, read the first three chapters of Ephesians. You'll know what that phrase means. It's extraordinary. The unfathomable riches of Christ. That's us. That's, that, I mean, that's what we have. That's what we've been given. For our sakes, Jesus became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become extravagantly wealthy with a wealth that lasts for all eternity. Paul is saying that we get to follow Christ's example now of self-denying, sacrificial giving, even through our money. But God uses our giving to accomplish way more than the meeting of earthly needs. Through our, our love-driven, sacrificial giving of the material blessings that God gives to us, we participate in the gracious work of God that gives eternal life to the souls of lost men and women and children. How does that work? Through the sacrificial love that is put on display in the giving. That love comes from Jesus. We love because he first loved us. It is love that he lavished upon us at the cross and that now works through us toward others. It is the love behind the giving that makes the giving powerfully useful to God. If the love is not there, if the love is not there, the money is of no consequence. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it says so very clearly. If I sell all my possessions and I give all that to the poor, but I do not have love, I am canceled out. I am nothing. It's the love that makes the giving useful to God. That's why Paul can point to the sacrificial, life-giving death of Jesus that didn't involve money to instruct us on our use of money because that was the preeminent act of sacrificial love by which we are forever saved, we who trust in him alone. So here's the deal, beloved. We can either love our money or we can love with our money. The difference between those two approaches to money is the difference between bondage and beautiful liberty. This is as piercing to me as it is to any of you. I've spent this week at the same time delighted and agonizing because of, the, of what all this is about, what it says. In verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about following through on our good intentions. Have you ever failed to do something that other people were counting on you to do, that you said you would do, and then you failed to follow through and actually do it? I certainly have. Uh, I, I get exasperated sometimes, not, not with how other people do that to me, but how I do that to other people. Here in verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds the Corinthian saints that they were the first of all the churches to begin to participate in this gracious work, to provide financial help to the persecuted and impoverished saints in Jerusalem. That's really something. He had invited churches in 
Asia Minor and in Macedonia and in Greece. He'd invited all of these churches, and the first ones to start gathering money were the Corinthians. And then they stopped. Here in verse 11, Paul exhorts them saying, but now finish doing it also. Just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. In verse 8, Paul said, I'm not speaking as a command. In verse 10, he said, I give my opinion in this. He makes it clear here that he's not trying to drag money out of anybody's pockets. But in verse 11, he does give a command. He says, now finish doing what you said you were going to do. That's a command. That's imperative. This is a command from an apostle of God to the church of God. And you know what that means? That means it's supposed to be obeyed. Paul did not command the Corinthians to participate in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. They volunteered their participation. They declared their intention to participate, just as Paul hoped all the churches would do. And now, Paul does command them to finish doing what they said they would do. The reliability and trustworthiness of our words is a very, very big deal to God, beloved. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul said to these same saints, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Paul's saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5.37, and the same thing that James said in James 5.12, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, Solomon said, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, because he takes no delight in fools. Kind of blunt. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Why? Because God doesn't need your money, but he demands your integrity. In Psalm 15, David said, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? The answer, he who walks with integrity, who works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does these things will never be shaken. Brothers and sisters, uh, we need to hear what these passages are saying. God does not command you or me to give any specific dollar amount or any percentage of our income to supply the needs of his people and to advance his kingdom on earth. If he did, it would be a lot more than you think. I hear people all the time talk about the tithe. The word tithe means tenth. You know what the tithe consisted of by law in ancient Israel? 23.33% of everything that you made. Not 10%. There were three tithes. There was a general tithe, a tithe for the support of the temple, and then a one once every three years tithe when you came, when you came to the presence of God 
and it worked out to be 23.33%. How many pastors do you know who are out there saying, okay, it's tithe time, give, give 25% of what you make? Nobody's doing that. I, I only point that, I, guys, I don't point that at The last thing in the world I want is for you to say, oh man, I'm supposed to give 23.33%. What I'm saying is if God, were, if God were to give you a number, it'd probably be a whole lot higher than you expect. But he doesn't. And there's a very good reason that he doesn't. God does not command any of us to give any specific dollar amount or any percentage of our income. He does intend for every one of us to give what we are able to give and to give generously and joyfully. And he commands us to do what we say in the matter of giving, even when it hurts, to do so. He doesn't need your money or mine, but he intends for his people to treat the money that he gives us as his and not ours, just like everything else. Our money is a stewardship entrusted to us to use for God's purposes, and some part of that purpose is we are instruments for the provision of our own need as long as he lets us be. For some Christians, the ability to do that comes to an end through illness, infirmity, some kind of financial catastrophe. But we're never more than and we're never less than instruments. God is always the source. All right, I'm going to wrap up. I would not be uh, rightly representing what God has to say in these two chapters if, if I failed to point out something that, we sh that really should already be obvious here, and that is that this collection of money that God coordinated across all the churches through Paul was not to provide for the material needs of unbelievers. Now, that is a, that is a reality that a lot of Christians just have a huge problem with, but it is reality. It was for the saints in Jerusalem. If the household of God is not our highest priority and your highest priority in giving, then our priorities are not God's priorities. Generous, joyful giving within the body of Christ is a God-ordained, powerful demonstration of our oneness, of our unity in Christ. Think about this for a minute. The Jerusalem church was made up overwhelmingly of Jewish saints. But the churches through whom God was providing this much-needed help were overwhelmingly made up of Gentile saints. Apart from Jesus, <laughs> those two groups, Jews and Gentiles, were as alienated from one another as you can possibly imagine. But in Christ, the two are made one. Read Ephesians 2. Every division that exists between human beings is torn down by the love of Jesus Christ. And our generous and joyful giving to build up the church in every place that the church exists on earth is an instrument that God uses to display our oneness in Christ to the whole world. In John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, the night he was arrested, just before he was arrested, Jesus said that it, that it would be by beholding our oneness 
our oneness with Christ and our oneness with each other, that the world would know that the Father sent him. That means that our unity has evangelistic power. And God is making it clear to us that one of the things, one of the ways we get to participate in the beautiful display of that unity is through our giving to provide for one another. That's why it makes sense that the priority is the household of God because we're here to seek and save the lost. We're here to carry on the work of Christ on earth. We're not here to end poverty. Be lovely. It's going to happen in the kingdom of our Lord. Next week, we're going to talk about ending poverty in the church because that is what God is talking about. Next week, we're going to talk about one of the hardest things that you will ever find in the Bible, and that is God's intention for equality of provision in the household of God. And I, I will ask you to look ahead at the rest of this chapter, at the rest of these two chapters, and if you find something that contradicts that statement, feel free to let, give me a call, send me a text, let me know. God's goal in our giving within the household of God is equality of provision within the household of God. That word shows up multiple times here. And the example that Paul uses to, to defend that declaration goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 16. Think about it, brothers. This is what I've been agonizing over this week, is that. We must not underestimate the impact of the display of oneness that God accomplishes when we take good care of each other. God uses your gifts to show off the sacrificial love of Jesus and the oneness that he has created in his body to the whole world. So every time, <laughs> every time that we give some of what God has given to us, what our hearts should be delighting in, what we should be saying is, look at what God is letting me do. I'll, I'll end there. Loving Father, thank you for inviting us into your gracious work. Thank you for giving us the opportunity and the blessed privilege of living out your boundless generosity to us in Jesus Christ through our generosity to others, especially to those who are part of your spiritual household. Make us gleeful givers, Lord. Teach us to see everything that you graciously put into our hands as an opportunity to extend your grace to others. Now, Father, we, uh, we pray for the, the blessed time that you have granted to us this morning to share a meal together, to share each other's fellowship. We pray that it would be, that, that it would be delightful in your sight. Father, you, you have given to us already exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine in Christ. And your grace just keeps coming to us through him. We love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.